Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Well, I'm excited today to get to talk to my friend Christopher Yuan about his brand new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. And Dr. Yuan's been with our students here at Impact 360, teaching our fellows and talking about these topics. He's teaches at Moody Bible Institute, and also he's been speaking and teaching on these issues for quite a while, and a fabulous book of his, which we've talked about before, is Out of a Far Country, and definitely worth a read. But Christopher, it's great to have you here, as always, and looking forward to our conversation together. Yeah, good to be back. Yeah, so this book's finally out. We, we talked about it a little bit while you were writing it, yes. and the idea is kind of leading up to it. But maybe, um, maybe at, a, at a high level, we'll dive into some of the particulars. Why did you feel like it was important as a follow-up to your first book and kind of your memoir talking about your story to write this book, Holy Sexuality. Well, my first book that I wrote with my mother is just about our faith journey and and we wanted to really communicate God's truth and theology through our narrative. And at the end of that first book, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, I introduced this concept Toward the end, just holy sexuality, it was a very short chapter. All those chapters were actually pretty short. It's about six pages, just to introduce this concept, holy sexuality. And I knew when I wrote that book that I had to follow up and I had to flesh out this concept of holy sexuality, which is a new term, but I don't think it is a new concept. It's something that just comes out of scripture and I just gave it a I called it something and I called it holy sexuality, but I just knew that I need to explain that more. So my new book is just the fruition of all that time and since then kind of processing and and developing this concept. Absolutely, and it's such a helpful way of getting at it and I really appreciate it, but maybe the the concept of holiness, let's just start there. That's not a popular concept in many ways. Maybe talk about what is holiness and let's talk about the first part of that and then we'll dive into the, maybe how we apply that to sexuality, but just kind of why start with that adjective holy at the beginning of it? Yeah, well, I mean, holy, I get that from the Old Testament and the New Testament where God is saying, I am holy, be holy. He's calling us, he's telling Israel, and then Peter is then telling the church, be holy for I am holy. And uh, this concept of holiness oftentimes for us is kind of like, oh, kind of like just doing all the right things. And it is that, but actually holiness in the Bible, Old Testament and the New Testament means being set apart. So in other words, we are set apart and we are called to be set apart from the other pagan nations, talking to Israel, and we are to, to be set apart as like a holy nation. So that's important for us to, to recognize this mean of being set apart. And that's so applicable today in our culture where sexuality is being so distorted and and different from what God intended, uh, almost allowing, well, it's actual sexual experimentation is is a good thing, doing whatever you desire is what is right. So God is really telling us that we need to be set apart from that. And so the holy sexuality is kind of stemming from that understanding of holiness. Yeah, that's great. So that's the holiness part. So then how would you, what would be your kind of short definition of what is holy sexuality then? How would you kind of encapsulate that? Yeah, holy sexuality, again, it comes from scripture and it comes also in a response to my frustration with the framework that we have pigeonholed ourselves into, which is this framework of heterosexuality, bisexuality, and homosexuality, because we think that's, when we think about sexuality, it's either heterosexuality, homosexuality, or bisexuality, 
But I, I wrestled with then when we are stuck in that, then our, what is our ultimate conclusion for a Christian? Because as Christians, we know homosexuality is not God's will. Then the logic seems to be, so therefore heterosexuality is. But heterosexuality is so broad that can include sinful, some forms of sinful relationships, such as a man being very promiscuous and having sex with many women. That's considered heterosexual. A man could be married, but he's cheating on his wife and another woman. That's also considered heterosexual. An unmarried man living with a girlfriend, and, and they're sleeping together. They even have a few children together. That's also considered heterosexual, but all of them are sinful in God's eyes. So I knew that I needed to come with a much more precise definition for what God is calling us to, because in our world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. Right. We are living where ambiguity is elevated as a good thing, and we can ourselves then be ambiguous for ourselves. So that's why I recognize there had to be clarity on what is it that God calls us to. So holy sexuality, it's two paths, either chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. Okay, no, that's great. And I think that what I love about the way you're framing that and bringing that precision is it's, it brings clarity to just a ton of confusion. Yeah. And, yeah. and it gives us, hey, what is, what is the Christian perspective on this? Well, it's the pursuit of holiness, holy yeah. sexuality. So I love that. You also talk about in your book about the importance of anthropology. Why does anthropology matter? Define anthropology as well. Yep. And why did you kind of start there as you began kind of thinking through some of these categories? Yeah, it's really important that we can't understand human sexuality without beginning with theological anthropology. And I know that's, that's a mouthful, theological anthropology, that often scares people off right away. But if we break that down, anthropology is a study of humanity. Theological anthropology is a study of humanity through God's eyes. In other words, through the lens of scripture. So anthropology as a discipline, as a study that's devoid, that, that discipline is basically using methods and approaches and presuppositions that say there is no God. So anthropology is kind of a study of history, study of cultures and the development of cultures. But theological anthropology is studying, understanding who we are according to God. And why that is important for sexuality is because for us to understand human sexuality, which is a human characteristic, well, we first need to understand who we are as human beings. And I don't think we usually start there. We kind of just start with sexuality and we take on these presuppositions from the world that really anthropology says there is no God. We're just basically evolved from whatever it is. And morality is essentially what we make of it. That's, that makes sense in an atheistic worldview. But those of us who recognize the weaknesses of the atheistic worldview that cannot explain cosmology, that cannot explain ethics, that cannot explain knowledge, we then know that in that framework, if you know there is a God and there is a God who created us, so therefore, for us to understand ourselves, we need to understand God first. That's actually from John Calvin, you know, one of the, the reformers, and he was saying how important that is. If we're going to understand ourselves, we must understand God first. Absolutely, I think that's really helpful because then that informs everything else, and right. we're not trying to piecemeal it together based on assumptions or what's popular or what's in vogue in the day or anything else like that. So one of the questions that comes up, especially in Christian circles right now in conversations is, okay, well, well can you be a gay Christian? Yeah. 
So what's your perspective on even the way of talking about it like that? What are the assumptions that may be baked into that? And are those good? Are those yes. helpful? Are those Christian? Right. Talk about that a little bit from your perspective on that. Well, when someone asks me, I usually begin, and, and, and actually this is a great habit to have when you're asked by others about sexuality and faith. Answer with a question. That's a good way because that's a good way to test the water, see where they are, right. to then know how you would respond. Because if they're just, they have no faith, they're completely atheistic. I mean, then I know where to start with them. If they have some faith, you know, then I know kind of how I can answer. Not, I'm not answering differently, but I'm going to be focusing on something that would be different from an unbeliever or a believer or even a believer, whether they're an immature or young Christian or maybe someone who's more grounded and even their positions on this. So when it comes to can a person be gay and Christian, I kind of begin with, well, tell me what you mean by the term gay, what you mean by the term Christian. Because, I mean, even just say Christian, well, some people say, well, someone who goes to church. That's not my definition for a Christian. Someone who's, you know, said a prayer, well, you know, let's, let's so, you know, because my definition, you know, is, is one who, as Jesus says, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. That's, that's how I would define a follower of Christ. So, I mean, it's a, it's a costly, that decision to, to put your faith in him, you know, and, and also Paul, you know, that you believe in your heart and, you, and confess with your mouth. That's also, you know, in line with what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's about faith by grace, but also as you are a Christian, it's a costly life of surrender. But then what do you mean by gay? Because that could mean a lot of things. It could just mean, well, the person who might experience these attractions. Or it could mean someone who then identifies as gay. Or it could be someone who's, who's living in a same-sex relationship. Sexuality can be kind of... There's three important aspects, the attraction aspect, the action aspect, and then the identity aspect. So when someone says they're gay, almost always it, it includes that this person has these experiences, these desires, these attractions, these affections. But is this person acting on them? It depends. Some do, some do not. Does one identify? Not always. So helping people to think through what they mean for myself, if, if a person experiences same-sex attractions and they're not acting on that, they could still be living faithful to God. In other words, they're resisting their temptations to act on those behaviors and act, act on or, or even give in to those lustful desires or sinful desires. So can a person be Christian and still have same-sex attractions? Actually, that question is, question is related to another broader question, which is, can a Christian be someone who is tempted with sin? Well, obviously, yes. Jesus Christ himself was tempted with sin as well. I personally wouldn't then call that individual gay. I, I teach at Moody Bible Institute, and, and when I have students that I might work with or disciple and they struggle with same-sex attractions, I tell them, don't identify by your struggle. Don't identify by your sin temptation. Identify by Christ. That doesn't mean that you deny that you have these experiences. But why that term for me is problematic is because this term has been too closely associated with who we are. If you talk to a friend who identifies as gay, when you ask them, when you say gay, what do you mean? You never hear them say, this is what I feel. This is what I do. It's always, this is who I am. I don't know of any other sin issue where we have confused and conflated sexuality with who you are. Because here's the truth, Jonathan. Sexuality is not who you are, it's how you are. 
I think that's really helpful context and brings the right kind of nuance and asking the question. I love that as in anything, if we want to understand where this person is coming from, let's let's find those things out. But especially on an issue as confusing and heated as this one can become. I, I really appreciate the discussion you bring because a lot of Christians, I think, struggle with how to think about these categories. But what would you say is the difference between temptation on the one hand and desire on the other? Yeah. And so, for example, are some desires inherently sinful? Mm-hmm. Are they not? Talk about that, maybe help us with some distinctions there, because I really appreciate the way you got at that in in the book. Yeah, and the reason why I had this discussion is because right now there's a debate going on among evangelical Christians. They all say, we hold to biblical sexuality, and there can be debate, a little bit of debate on that, but what usually they mean is they say that sex is reserved for husband and wife in marriage, and that I agree, but sometimes they kind of end there, and and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment after I discuss this temptation and desire. But then the question is, well, what about attractions? For example, I just used the phrase same-sex attractions. So then the question is, are same-sex attractions sinful or not? One side says they are sinful. They're inherently sinful. Another side, they, they say, no, they're not. And to be honest, and this is total, in all honesty, I used to be in this camp. When I was a new Christian, came to faith, I came out of same-sex relationships and, um, you know, pretty radical transformation, God saving me in prison of all things. And I was under the impression that same-sex attractions were not sinful. And this is why, because I equated the term attraction with temptation. Because I was reading through scripture. Jesus was tempted for 40 days in, in the wilderness. He's a person that is sinless. Jesus also in the writer of Hebrews says Jesus was tempted in every way, but was without sin. So temptation in and of itself is not sin, but it can lead to sin. Jesus resisted and did not ever allow temptation to turn into sin. But my, my mistake that I made was that I equated attraction with temptation. But as I thought more, I, I love languages and I love words have meaning. And, and it's fascinating how words have ranges of meaning. So there's a lot of overlap. Very seldom do you find words that almost are identical in their scope and their definition. So when I thought about this, I thought temptation and attraction. I don't know if I could say that they're completely equivalent in what they mean, because attraction could also have a synonym with desire or affections. But the two a temptation, I mean, so where, so you, uh, you have the biblical terms, temptation and desire. Where does attraction fit? Does attraction mean temptation? Does it mean desire? Or maybe both? That's where we get a lot of debate. And honestly, that's where a lot of these conversations around are same-sex attraction sinful or not, where there's, I think there's too much ambiguity because we're not defining our terms accurately. And I'm suggesting that when we're talking about what is sinful and what is not, let's stick to biblical categories, same-sex desire and same-sex temptation. So the question then is, are same, instead of asking, are same-sex attractions sinful or not, I kind of rephrase the question and ask, are same-sex temptations sin? and our same-sex desires sin. So start with same-sex temptations. So temptations, as I said before, aren't sinful. Jesus was tempted in every way. So I do not believe temptations are sinful. However, I also don't believe that temptations are innocent. Temptations are rooted in our sin nature. And so therefore, by definition, they're not good. 
they're not sinful acts, actual sin, but they are coming from our sin nature and can quickly lead to sin. And so we need to be very careful with temptations or even external temptations that might not be coming from our sin nature. Those are not good temptations and can lead to sin. So we need to very actively and persistently resist temptations. But the question is, how about same-sex desires? So a problem with same-sex desires or, or the concept of desire, whether that's sinful or not, is many Christians think that desire and lust are actual kind of different categories. You have lust here, everyone will agree that's sin, but then desire, well, it depends. As long as desire isn't lust, then that's okay. However, in the New Testament, the Greek word for that we translate lust is the same Greek word that you, we translate as desire. So, biblically speaking, desire doesn't turn into lust. Sinful desires are lust. In the same way, in the Old Testament, the word for desire and the word for covet is the same Hebrew word. So, actually, the, the concept for desire, covet, and lust biblically are all the same word. So therefore, how do we know that whether one is sinful or not? This is where I get to talking about the end of desire. I talked in my book, I call it a big word. I call it the telos of desire or all desire is teleological. Telos in Greek means end, but it also can mean purpose, goal, or aim. So if you think about this, every desire has an end. You can't have a desire with no end in mind. You, we can't just desire for desire's sake. All of our desires has an end, like chocolate cake. That's the object of yeah. my desire. Consume the could, right. But then there's a purpose to it. So it's not just objective, but it's also purpose. In other words, what do I want to do with this cake? I want to, like you say, consume it. And, you know, I mean... If, you wanna, if I want to have one slice, you know, that's not too bad. But if I want to have like two cakes, yeah. that wouldn't be good. Same thing with desire. If my desire is for something, well, it depends on what I want to do with that. That then makes it right or wrong. For example, I, I'm not married. I don't have children. But if I had a daughter, if the object of my desire was my daughter, would that make it right or wrong? I don't know. It depends on what's my purpose of that desire. If my purpose of, for, for my desire is to raise her up fearing the Lord, to love her as our Heavenly Father has loved me, to make her feel like a daughter of the King, and to make her love the Lord, you know, and Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. That is my desire. Those are good desires. Right. However... Those are aimed at the right things. Good purpose, right end, right aim. However, if the end with my daughter, even though that's the same object, the purpose is that I want to, let's just say, abuse her, and it's a sexual desire. Those are sinful because that end is wrong. And even if I haven't done anything, but I have that desire, that desire is wrong. And I get that from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully after a woman, he has already committed adultery. Even though he hasn't done anything, that end of his desire is wrong, so therefore that end is wrong in itself. So all of our desires, whatever is the end, the object and the purpose and the aim, that is what determines if that's wrong, even though I haven't done it, that desire is wrong as well. Therefore, same-sex desire. If there's a sexual desire that an individual has for the same sex, that end action is wrong, so therefore that desire is wrong. 
I then also expand about this concept of romantic desires because this is where we get some confusion as well because people who will say, this is, this is what, remember I said at the beginning of this question, people will say, I have a biblical view of sexuality, but sometimes they only stop at the sex. In other words, they will say, same-sex sexual behavior is sinful, they're right, and then they say, same-sex sexual desires are sinful, and they're right, but they stop there. And what do I mean by this? They stop in not calling same-sex romantic desires sinful. Many lesbian couples, they have very little or no sexual desires, no desire for sexual relationships. So many lesbian couples, they don't really have sex, but it's romantic. And so if we're only limiting that same-sex sexual behavior, same-sex sexual desires are sinful, then many of the lesbian couples would be okay with God. They're not having sex, so it should be okay. But here's the problem, why romantic desires are wrong. If there is a man, so kind of taking this example of adultery, like Jesus says, if a man desires to, you know, lusts after women, he's committed adultery in his heart. So if the action is wrong, the desires are wrong. That also means everything in between is wrong, including all the romantic desires and romantic behavior that didn't yet lead to sexual behavior. For example, if there was a young man, let's just give the example of, you know, I'm teaching at Moody. If there was this young man, he's a student at Moody. He's married. His wife is at home with the children, but he's at school attending and going to school and taking classes. He becomes really close friends with this young lady. She's a student. She's unmarried, though, but not his wife. If they become really close friends, more than just friends, and they begin becoming almost like best friends, he walks her to class, he even holds her hand in chapel, he gives a peck on the cheek, would that be right or wrong? They can argue we're not having sex. I hope that we would all say that's wrong. It doesn't matter whether you're not having sex or not. But then people will say, why? Why is that not wrong? They're not having sex. Because if the end is wrong, even though they haven't committed the act, the desire is wrong, but also everything in between, including that romantic behavior. Because that end of that relationship between a married man and an unmarried woman who's not his wife can never end in something that God would bless, a union of two people. Even, even if they haven't had sex, it's still wrong. One question that comes up sometimes is, well, look, does biblical sexuality lead to harm or bad fruit? Sometimes right. different teachers are talking about these kind of concepts. Give us some perspective on how to think about that. Yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest push now. I mean, same-sex marriage has already been legalized, so almost it's a done deal. Now we have to do away with all these backwards, old-fashioned, cavemen Christians who still think this is sin. And it's becoming actually an all, I mean, it is, it is a complete, full-on attack. You see it from Hollywood and the movies, for example, Boy You Raced, all these movies that is actually kind of picturing this straw man of this bigoted Christian that can't love gay people. Like, for example, you know, a, uh, a Baptist preacher who can't love his son who's gay and has to force them to become straight by going through reparative therapy or whatever that is. So what happens in, in, in some of these movies is someone commits suicide. So the blame is on then Christian parents are killing gay kids. And that's a serious yeah. accusation. If that were the case, something needs to be done. 
People will even point to research and they say, research, this study has shown that religious parents and parents who reject their kids, those are the two things that causes gay youth to have a higher incidence of suicide ideation. The problem with that is two, uh, several, several issues. One thing is, how do you find religiosity? There was really no definition in their study. I mean, were they even Christian? Were they New Age? Were they Muslim? Were they, you know, I mean, the religion, you know, people who were religious, that can mean a lot of things. And you're talking about the parameters of the research. Of itself. that research that people often are, gay activists are pointing to. And they're, they're saying, this study shows that suicide ideation among gay youth is increased when the parents reject their kids and also they are religious. Well, what does religious mean? And what does rejection mean? Because actually, I know most Christians that I know don't reject their kids. They still hold to biblical sexuality, but they don't reject them. I suggest that with parents if they have gay children. You don't reject them. You want to love them to Christ. Uh, so there's many problems with this research that people point out. But actually, I think one of the strongest things to help people see that it might not be, and I think it actually isn't. When you look at the research, there's an important study out of the Netherlands where they study suicide rates among gay teens in the Netherlands. Now, let's remember, let's remind each other, the Netherlands. Netherlands is touted as the most gay-affirming country in the world. They are the first country to legalize same-sex marriage. They've done that for years, I mean, close to a decade. And if evangelical Christians were the cause for gay teen suicides, then should we not find a lower incidence of suicides? We don't. Suicides are still as high. And actually, my point is, these gay activists and these gay Christians who are pointing to this is the problem, and when it isn't, they actually are causing more harm because it's distracting away from what really could be the real problem and what could be the real solution. So actually by pointing to something else, which is not the problem, is actually causing more harm and could be actually further increasing suicidation among gay youth because they're pointing, they're barking up the wrong tree. That's really helpful. And so, so that's what the research tells us. Yeah. And then what about just quickly some, some of the more revisionist type interpretations of the yeah. Bible using the words bad fruit. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that briefly? That's just becoming more popular yes. to kind of use that, that this teaching therefore can't be good. Right. So because it's leading to outcomes that aren't yeah. good. Explain that yeah. and how to respond maybe briefly to that. Which... So in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus says, if uh, a tree does not bear good fruit, cut it down. So then the argument is, this biblical view of sexuality is not producing good fruit, it's only producing bad fruit. The problem with that interpretation is Jesus' understanding, and, and when he's talking about bad fruit, so there's different, there's two words for bad in, in, in Greek. One is kakos, which means kind of negative bad, but there's also the Greek word paneros, which means bad or wicked. So when people say, use this argument, for example, Matthew Vines, he uses this argument and he tries to develop this as if 
That's what Jesus is saying. It's actually impossible that it could, bad fruit means bad outcome. Bad outcome would need to use that Greek word kekos, which means negative, not positive. But actually the word that Jesus uses is paneros, meaning it's wicked, it's sinful, it's evil. It's not having some negative outcomes, but actually bad fruit in context, because actually previously in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about good fruit as being the good fruit of repentance. Good fruit is repentance, bad fruit is unrepentance. So it's talking about wickedness. Unrepentance is wickedness, not some bad outcome of how, you know, some teaching to see measurement. So what Jesus is talking about here is not about whether a teaching is, can produce good fruit or bad fruit. What Jesus is talking about is whether an individual produces good fruit or bad fruit. That's why Jesus says, I'm going to cut the tree down, because in other words, unrepentance is something that will receive God's judgment. It's actually totally crystal clear. I don't know of a single liberal or progressive or conservative scholar who will take that kind of just radical, it's an unheard of interpretation that completely doesn't fit into the Gospel of Matthew or even in line with the uh, Gospel. It just kind of shows just a, a very kind of low view of Scripture and a very kind of sloppy hermeneutics, which is pretty, uh, you know, revealing of a lot of the other things. And I tell people, if the foundation of some ministries, or I'm sorry, I won't even call it ministries, some organizations, for example, like the Reformation Project, if that is their foundation on such poor exegesis, it's actually kind of revealing of the poor exegesis that definitely follows as well. And, and it reminds us of the importance of taking the context of Scripture carefully and looking at those things and, and as opposed to just taking a word that we hear, well, in maybe 21st century English connotation means this, right. reading that back into the text, right. co-opting it for this particular you know, perspective or bias or agenda, and then there you go, you've got a brand new interpretation. Exactly. And, and that's not going to lead us uh, to a good place. And so I, I think that's so important in this whole conversation for people to go back to the scriptures to understand what God has said. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We've been talking to our friend Christopher Yuan about his book, Holy Sexuality, and how to help the next generation think about sex and gender with a biblical worldview. This was actually part one of a two-part conversation, so I hope you'll join us on our next podcast as we continue our conversation. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.